Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, feelers, to episode 118. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and here, as usual, is my best friend and co-host, Patrick, one of the few men who I'd go into battle with Achilles for. Hey, everyone. This week, we're discussing the three-plus-hour-long director's cut of Wolfgang Peterson's 2004 epic Greek tragedy, Troy. Joining us to tackle this violent, emotional, classic story is friend of the show, returning guest, promoter of positivity, and editor at ScreenRant.com, Andrew Dice. Welcome back to the show, Andrew. Welcome back. We are lions, men. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> well, we will be digging into Troy very soon, but just briefly before we do that, I thought it would be great to hear about an experience that Patrick had last week. Uh, longtime listeners of our show may be familiar with this. Patrick is a director and does a little bit of short film creation on the side. And last week, he did this once again for the Little Rock 48-Hour Film Project. So, Patrick, would you mind telling us about how it went this year and what your movie was about and all that good stuff? Yeah. Um, so, I'm an aspiring director. Outside of the 48, I've only had an opportunity to be a part of um, other short films that I haven't directed. But that's hopefully being rectified over the next several months and year. Because the 48 gives me an opportunity to not only do that, but also gets me amped and just really pumped up to want to do more of that. So, it just means putting your putting your foot to the pedal and just going. But this year, we uh, if you're not familiar with the Little Rock, with the 48 Hour Film Project, it's a it's a a worldwide competition, and it's hosted by a ton of different cities around the country and around the world. And essentially, if you're if you're not familiar with it, it's a two day competition where you are asked to write, direct, score, edit and present a short film within the span of 48 hours. And it's incredibly exciting, incredibly frustrating all at the same time. And so if you know what you're doing, it's pretty fun. If you don't know what you're doing, it can get pretty um, pretty crazy. And this is my fourth year to be a part of it, my third year to direct. And this is actually the third year that I've had to work with the team that we lovingly call Rockwood Films, which is kind of a mashup of the two big cities I say big cities in quotes because yeah, yeah. let's not, let's not get crazy. Yeah. I mean, I'm from, from Little Rock, Arkansas, so it's whatever. But in any case, this year, uh, the way it works is on Friday night, your group draws a genre uh, out of a hat. Literally they have a hat and you draw a genre. And most of the time you're given two options from the pair that you have, and you can either use one or both. And then every group that competes has to use three particular elements. You have to use a, a line of dialogue, a, a prop, and a character. So every film that gets screened has those three elements in order to be eligible for awards and nominations. And so this year, we drew sci-fi and period piece, which means that we could have either used either or or combined them. And I know that when I... When I sent you a message, what we got, Aaron, you were like, oh my gosh, I know what you're going to pick. Period piece all the way, right? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> now I so wish I, you would have mashed them up. Well, and, and that's the thing is when we went, when we left the the kickoff, we had actually kicked around the idea of doing both because one of the story ideas that we'd come up with involved 
someone going back in time to 2018 from the future. So 2018 would have become the period piece. In any case, the line of dialogue that we had to use was you're incredible. Uh, the prop that we used uh, had to use was a bicycle. And then the character was either Danny, D-A-N-N-Y, or Danny, D-A-N-N-I-E, male or female, who was a newbie. And so that that gets into kind of ambiguous territory because it's like, how do you portray a newbie? So the creativity behind these things is where you get a lot of your nominations from the judges. Now, what gets you into the best of screening, which is what happens a couple of weeks after the screenings take place with all the films, is one of two things. In any case, your film has to be memorable. Most of the time, a memorable film is usually incredibly hilarious or incredibly vulgar. Um, I, I, I would love to <laughs> bring my... Yeah. <laughs> as, yeah. So a lot of times, we are surprised uh, as audiences at what actually gets to the best of screening because of the audience reactions to it. Like we had one a couple of years ago that was nothing but puppets and completely incoherent, but a few Donald Trump jokes and some swearing here and there. And it gets you into the, uh, <laughs> into the best of didn't get any awards, but you know, whatever. And so for, for films that have more of a dramatic piece to them, it, it has to be really good. Like it has to be really, uh, emotionally gripping in the four to seven minutes that you have to tell the story in order to be memorable. Last year we had a chance to do one. We got martial arts and, um, and it was a lot of fun. We used, we used kids, we put voiceover, we made it kind of a throwback to your old uh, 1970s martial arts films. Unfortunately we missed the deadline. So we'd lost out on pretty much every opportunity for an award with the exception of audience favorite, which we got. So that was kind of our redemptive thing. So anyway, all that to be said, this year we got sci-fi and our movie's called Boxed In. And it's a story about a family of siblings who are home one day during the summer. They're getting ready to start school in a couple of weeks. I guess the parents are out of town or out, or out working. And the oldest sister gets a mysterious package in the, in the mail from an unknown person, this person sending her text messages saying, Hey, I'm leaving you a package and you have three chances to change a mistake. And what she finds out is that she gets this package. She opens it up and it's a device that apparently allows her to go back in time um, to a certain point. And so the whole story pretty much rewinds. It goes through a loop several times and ends with, her having this last opportunity to press the button in order to change something that eventually hap uh, potentially happens at the, at the end of the movie. So we try to put some drama in it. We try to put some, there's a couple of places of, of comedy, some levity there, but, uh, but we're really proud of it. I think it's one of the more polished ones that we, that we put together and we actually got it in on time. So we're really excited to see what other people think about it when we screen uh, this next Friday night. Well, we have both had the opportunity to see it because we're special. And so I wanted us to kind of kick around a little bit of praise for you because I know I really enjoyed the heck out of it, Patrick. And having seen them all, I would say that I can see your growth both directorially and then also as a team. Um, and I really enjoyed the framing in this one in particular. And I like that it has this kind of primer looper time yeah, loop yeah. feel to it. Yeah. 
What do you think, Andrew? Yeah, any any time. I guess like because automatically you say like time loop, and my mind goes to like Star Trek or uh, you know any any variety of those kind of things. And I'm always a little weary because it can go. Well, it can just get a little too um, wacky or maybe uh, high concept. Uh, whereas like you know primer uh and box t- it's well okay <laughs> i should i should i should explain after after seeing it i went and looked up uh some of the older uh films i think it was the 2016 one which uh sos yeah that was um, our first one we did as a as a rockwood did together my first directorial one yeah and i and i realized i should have from now on, anytime I see one of your short films, I should be very suspicious of just what is about to happen from about the first moments of the <laughs> film. <laughs> so it was funny to see that same, uh, like that same tendency, but shifted into science fiction, which was, um, maybe more in the name of a uh, fun, like more in the name of, um, like an intellectual fun. I don't mean like, you know, knee slapping fun, but, uh, sure. the kind of sci fi that is like, an interesting idea executed well and i think that is what uh, a short film can be a really good thing for and mm-hmm. in this case um I, yeah didn't go too didn't go too far didn't go it's kind of the ones where it ends and uh you're kind of like oh um yeah now i see why short films are actually a, a really appealing form uh, in their own right which i think a lot of people maybe aren't uh <laughs> well, there's just very little exposure to them, right? In the, yes. in the mainstream, like even <laughs> sure, if sure. someone wanted to see uh, Boss, it like, or would they be able to as of next week or something? Well, once the once the screener happens, so we have two groups that screen on Thursday and Friday. Our screens on Friday, and then one you'll be able to see them probably after August third. That's when the best of screening happens, and so. Whether or not we win anything or even get to the best of, we'll be able to release the movie on YouTube publicly to be able to have, you know, whoever wants to see it, see it. We just, it gives us, um, it keeps the, the, we'd get disqualified if we pushed it out because then it becomes something that if it ended up winning, um, it has the opportunity to go to the Little Rock Film, or not the Little Rock, but the Fayetteville Film Festival, which is in Northwest Arkansas. And believe it or not, if a film like this was ever like, if it won that, then it would compete eventually it can. So it's the, the 48 hour film project is such a big thing. And as proud as I am of the stuff that we put out, there's stuff that's a ton better. And you've got teams that are so polished. I think at one point there was, I remember we were talking on Saturday when we were filming that there was actually a major film studio. I don't know who it was that put together a 48 because, mm. you know, just because they could. And it's it's less about trying to beat out other people and really more about exercising your ability to tell stories and, and practice that process of putting something together. Yeah. And uh, Aaron, you mentioned it being more polished. And I think part of that comes from the fact that we work have worked together for three years on this. Yeah. And as, as we continue to do that, the three of us, my my editor and this year, he was the actually the writer of the of the of the of the script. Um, he and I, as well as our, the guy that does the original music for us, we're working on a short film right now based on SOS, loosely based on it. 
in which we could flesh it out a little bit further, a little bit, make it make more sense, a little bit more coherent and eventually let the 48 be an opportunity for us to kind of just flesh out ideas. So things that got put on the cutting room floor are ideas that I would love to actually push forward and make more short films for, because they're good ideas. We just, we didn't have the resources to necessarily put them together to create a beginning, middle and end. Right. Um, we love the kids that we work with, but next year, if we do it, we're going to try to find adults so we can actually write more for them. Uh, we loved our, our actress, our, our, our lead. She's an aspiring actress and takes her, her role very seriously. Um, her name is misspelled my fault. It's not Finn Lee. It's Finn Lee. So if you ever see her on the big screen, know that <laughs> she got her first official like credit misspelled uh, by us. So, but we had a really good time with it and it just, it, it ignites my, my creativity to want to do that more. Yeah. Well, I hope you get to man, because it's good stuff and it's, yeah. it's really cool to see the growth uh, yeah. and see you get to do this. Cause I know how much it means to you. Um, and you know, last year you guys went pretty far, so who knows where you're going to yeah. go this time. Right. We get some, you know, we get some really good feedback from the judges. They were actually sitting behind us at the best of and expressed their remorse for not being able to put us in any categories because we missed the deadline, but they, they had given us some really great feedback about, just the way it was put together and the, the creative use of you know, breaking the fourth wall and stuff like that. And that's why it was memorable is because we used that comedic element. So through this process, I, as a director, as a creator, I realized that I, I want to be more in that comedy realm. I feel like I write better comedically. Um, I know how to bring levity to a, to a situation, or at least I'm learning how to. And my counterpart who edits, he's more of a dramatic guy. So hopefully we can bring something together that, We'll incorporate both. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you for telling us about it. That is really great. And I hope that listeners, you guys will put in, put boxed in, in your memory and uh, look that up. We'll be sure and mention it on the podcast as well when it does become available for you. And of course, we'll put links out on our social media as well yeah. so that we can share it around and let the world see your amazing, talented work, Patrick. Okay, guys. Yes. Well, a couple quick announcements before we get into the movie. Uh, July donor pick voting has completed. We had a nice little June summer uh, theme of racing. And so then we like to say we are cruising into July. We gave five films uh, for our donors to choose from. And those were all Tom Cruise related movies. The winner was Edge of Tomorrow, a.k.a. Live, Die, Repeat. AKA all you need is kill AKA. It doesn't really matter what it's called because it's amazing. So um, in a landslide victory, I would say edge of tomorrow has taken the crown. And so we will be covering that probably in early August as our mini sode, because we have some traveling that's taking place at the end of July. So it might be pushed about a week, but it will be coming very soon. And lastly, we like to promote podcasts that we enjoy and other creators. So I want to let you take a listen to uh, one of those right now. This is Eric Skorsinski, who does a solo horror podcast, which is a really difficult task. And he does an incredibly great job at it. It's got high production values. It's short to the point. I think you'd really enjoy it. So check out Gut Reactions and here's what he has to say. Hey, what's up, Feeling Film listeners? My name is Eric, and I host a horror podcast called Gut Reactions. Every week, I'll take you guts deep into the themes and tropes of the best horror movies, television, and books that have ever been unleashed on mankind. 
From mainstream franchises like Insidious and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre to lesser-known gems like Tourist Trap and the Horror Express, I'm on a mission to cover them all, one bloody good movie at a time. Tune in to Gut Reactions on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or the podcast catcher of your choice. In the words of the Deadites, join us. All right, gents. Well, that is it. It is time to get into Troy. And before we do that, we need to give a spoiler alert as always. As I mentioned in the intro, we are discussing the director's cut of this film. So this is a movie that in the director's cut has a Blu-ray disc intro done by Wolfgang Peterson himself. And he says that he couldn't originally make it as a violent and sexy story uh, that he feels it was called for because uh, WB just wouldn't give him that opportunity. And so he was ecstatic when they came back and said that he could create this special cut of the film. In his opinion, he says the film has so much more emotion. It's more into the characters. It has more room to breathe and it's got more of their motivations and it feels really well balanced now. Uh, it has better sound design. He's very, very, very proud of the director's cut. Um, it's hard for me to disagree with him, guys. I know, Patrick, you have not seen the original film. You've only seen the director's cut. Uh, but with that, Andrew, why don't you kick us off, get us started, and tell us your one-word takeaway. <laughs> uh, my one-word takeaway from Troy, the director's cut, would be instructional. <laughs> Mainly because I think that this movie falls at a very, very, like very, very, very supremely interesting time in, uh, Hollywood's interest in adapting, um, period epics into big blockbuster CG fueled, uh, you know, just $200 million movies that are unfathomable armies smashing into each other. And with a, you know, uh, capital E, capital E P I C epic, uh, in terms of story, action, romance, uh, <laughs> melodrama, all of that, uh, from, from a person who has one of the most depressing directorial descents, uh, of someone that you are, are likely to find, like Wolfgang Peterson. This is from the guy who made, in the line of fire, which I love outbreak, which I love air force one, which I love the perfect storm was fantastic. Then like already that, uh, sequence of movies doesn't make a whole lot of sense to, to tackle, you know, one of the greatest epic stories ever told. Uh, and then after Troy, he went on to make Poseidon and a movie in Germany that I, that I've never seen. And I think that seeing Troy, you can see, why it feels in a lot of ways like uh the the movie and Wolfgang Peterson's uh, attempt to to really hit a like certified home run uh critically and you know commercially was that it's it's like the situation where you get a promotion which is an opportunity and then if it doesn't go the way you expect you end up paying for it and wishing that you'd kind of never Never, never tried for, for what you were doing. And I think that there is a lot of, um, like there's, there's a lot of cool stuff. It's very hard now because I think that most of the things that I remember Troy doing, other movies came in and did 
with bigger budgets or with better special effects in later years or with more um incredible performances that are that were uh acclaimed like dramatically so it's kind of uh because i think the movie came out in 2000 early to 2004 yeah so which is kind of predates a, a, a lot of these movies that you know you can rattle them off that are uh in terms of spectacle and uh just maybe ambition into fantasy uh, they, they really, really go for it and it's made to be an entertainment and made to be cut loose and, and enjoy the action as action and the swords and sandals return to it. Whereas this is almost like, uh, Wolfgang Peterson is trying to adapt those classic movies in a modern way without making too much of it as modern as movies later did and people just got used to. So I think it is a lot of going back to revisit it. It was not quite what I recalled it being maybe a little rougher in its rough spots. Uh, but I think that the director's kind of, it makes it very clear, if nothing else, what kind of movie Wolfgang Peterson was trying to make, like very much a throwback, very much a, you know, th- this is myth. Um, but, at times trying to show in some pretty interestingly like subversive ways where things can be miscast as myth or, uh, you know, even tackling the story of the Iliad without bringing the gods into it is almost an impossible task. You would need to do it like completely straight faced and just uh, a complete historical moment, which this movie doesn't try to be. So I think that it can maybe swing back and forth between the two, but, uh, as a movie that is trying in no way to resemble contemporary or, you know, naturalistic like storytelling uh, and meant to be about like big ideas as the story stories like this used to be. I think that it holds up as one of those, which is maybe a shame because I think a lot of people who would go back to see it would expect it to be gladiator or, uh, you know, Similar movies that were made to be everyone has English accents in them. Uh, it's, it's one of those movies where that is not quite the case in, in this one. And that ends up being probably an interesting point that we'll talk about, but, uh, a super fun. I think that the, the action is of its own. I remember things in this movie being the first time I ever saw them in a movie. So that was a cool thing to revisit. Uh, mainly it also makes me scared of what the human heroic musculature looks like today, because I remember being absolutely mind blown at how Brad Pitt looked in this movie. And now he looks like your standard superhero (laughs) actor. But, uh, so, Hey, come for Brad Pitt, uh, almost nude and stay for in the end. I think, uh, Eric Bana being a really cool character and some fun, uh, mythic Greek, story that sounds like it should be shouted at you more than seen in a movie maybe (laughs) all right well patrick what about you what was your one more takeaway from your first ever viewing of troy well this was my first ever viewing and the word that i i pulled from this was soap uh and not the not the thing that cleans you I, i was watching this movie and it was sort of serendipitous that my wife at the same time uh she's been getting into this CW series called Jane the Virgin. She found it on Netflix. So good. 
and I've been and I've been watching a little bit of it with her and rolling my eyes here and there because it's it's so bizarre in in certain ways. Like there are moments where it has drama and there are moments when it has romance and and a lot of moments when it has humor. I mean the the narrator, the voiceover throughout this whole thing is enough to just make you laugh out loud. And and that's what she said to me. She said it's got humor, drama and romance and that's why she likes it. And I I kind of responded back. I said this is really just a soap opera because she also watches days of our lives uh, unapologetically. And I'm like, I see some of these elements exist in daytime television where you have this dramatic turn of events. Like, Oh no, you didn't realize that this person was actually this. And she comes from this. And I didn't think those specific thoughts when it came to Troy, but I feel like the movie itself and the story it's telling coming from the source material shapes up in a similar way for me, because it's really a fight between two men about a girl. Um, and, and again, I'm oversimplifying this and I, I don't say that critically, but just as a, as a core thing, it comes down to that and about two really arrogant men fighting over some form of glory. And what Peterson does well is he puts that on an epic scale. And I think that you're right, Andrew, this is an ambitious movie, not ambitious from the sense that he was trying to say something really important, but just that it was big. I mean, it's three hours of big fight sequences and a library of quotes. Um, these are not conversations that you're going to hear people having in your modern dramas. And it's something that you have to get used to. You have to, you have to basically say, okay, I'm going to suspend my modern disbelief and live in this world. Where I think my disconnect was is this came four years after one of my favorite movies, Gladiator. And I feel like in a lot of ways it digressed in, and it, it wasn't campy necessarily, but it felt a little bit heavy handed in terms of I get the idea and I get what you're trying to say, but the way in which you're saying it feels like you're kind of throwing me into the story as opposed to just guiding me into that. And on a personal level, it's not really my cup of tea unless you're being full on camp and saying, look, we're just going to, we're going to accent all of these different things that make this story what it is. And you don't even have to make it funny. Just be obvious about who you are. Now, the fight sequences, I think themselves, as we'll get into, speak to that a little bit. I mean, there's a lot of violence and a lot of blood and a lot of gore. And that opening sequence really pulled me in. And the moment that we see Achilles do his thing, the tone is set. So I have no problems and no qualms about the fact that Wolfgang Peterson is saying, this is the movie that I'm making. This is the story that I'm telling. I just didn't quite, I was not grabbed as much as the folks that championed this. And I think it was because of what I felt was more heavy handed from, from my taste. Um, it was still enjoyable, but again, having the, having the taste of Ridley Scott, in my mouth beforehand, it's, I don't want to compare that. It's, it's unfair to compare two directors doing two different things, but you're sort of drawn to that because of the fact that you have that kind of love for a particular movie that is a period piece, even though it's not telling the same story. Um, but like you mentioned, there were standout performances and Achilles and Hector are probably two of my favorite characters in this. And, and we'll talk more about that as, as we move on. But, but yeah, at, at the heart of it, I, I felt like I was watching kind of an epic soap opera and kind of laughing to myself as I was watching. It was like, this is big and it's all over a girl. And because these guys want to rule the world, which is a 
you know, it's a common idea in these big movies, but at the same time, I kind of had to laugh at myself a little bit. Well, you know, it's not necessarily just a common idea in these big movies and it's a common idea in Greek tragedies. And that is my word It's tragic. And I, I feel like it's incredibly low hanging fruit and I get that, but this is one of the stories where it is comes from one of the stories, Homer's um, Odyssey, Homer's Iliad, that helped define classic Greek tragedy. And I feel, I guess, more so than you guys do, that it really nails it and captures it quite perfectly with the context of taking out some of the God impact and influence into the story directly. I feel like this has numerous characters colliding all with unique motivations and ideas of what honor and love entails, different interpretations of those things. And like the best of stories like this, there are plenty of action pieces with heroic acts to showcase, but it's really the the tragedy of lost lives, which we see on display multiple times. And then the relationships between people that are living in this time and being impacted by these fights and these wars and the effect of the war on everyone, even, you know, expanding that into the various countries that these take, these battles take place in all of that to me is what makes it so compelling. And for me, I always liked the movie and I rewatched it with the director's cut version for the first time a few months ago. It's what triggered wanting to do this episode I remember I was tweeting about it and Andrew responded about how much he enjoyed the film. And so we were yeah. like, yeah, we got to have you on. I mean, it's the summer of summer is blockbuster time. Right. And frankly, blockbusters are kind of meh this year so far. Uh, we've got the best one probably coming out in a couple of weeks with mission impossible. And so it's been kind of slow. So we were like, let's just do an older blockbuster and, and slide it into the summertime. And that's how I felt about it. Patrick, I actually love your one more takeaway because it, it is a soap opera. It really is. Yeah. A soap opera with, you know, muscular men like Andrew talked about um, and these big, big ideas. It just takes it and puts it on a huge scale with entire countries at at risk and not these small little lives that you see in Days of Our Lives. Um, and so, yeah, I, I love it. I mean, I think it is so well done. And I got to tell you, the director's cut is just massively better. Yes, it adds 30 minutes-ish or more to this movie, but the relationship building that occurs because of this director's cut and even some of the brutality that is added in there. One thing that's added in the director's cut is the dog at the very beginning of the film, which I I think is a, is a super powerful scene that is echoed later in the film as well um, with this dog, you know, roaming this battlefield and coming upon dead bloody bodies. And it really just, like you said, immediately kind of gets you in. You're like, Oh, that's, what we're yeah, talking and, about and undercuts like it, i think it's it it, commun- it makes the it frames the movie differently if you undercut the what is going to be an incredibly epic story with a dog you know coming across the the dead left in the wake of you know the day before and i do think like i i'm saying uh instructional as a sense of these movies or these stories were passed on and became one of the most famous stories in human civilization because of the telling, right? It it was how you communicate this stuff to people. And it is, it's super interesting to me 
to see how ha- casting people to say those things rather than having the story told to you can sometimes hinder uh, the scale of it, both for, for good and bad, you know, some of small moments. I I'm can tell you that uh, when Homer was delivering this, he probably did not go into detail about the little wooden lion that, you know, Hector had made for his son. And we get those moments through film, but it's also like Homer would have taken eight, 80 lines or a hundred lines where, you know, Ridley Scott and Russell Crowe have what we do in life echoes in eternity. And it's like, Oh, that's okay. You're putting that on a human level. Um, and it just plays differently again for a modern audience uh, is what people yeah. love so much for gladiator. Right. And I may represent that modern audience as, as you mentioned that because of the fact that I gravitate towards lines that I can digest in, in spurts as opposed to epic lines that are coming from Homer's piece is his tale. I mean, there are, I, I wish I would have had a copy of the Iliad with me because I, I, I would have said, okay, did, did all it was all this said, was this dialogue? And I think that we have to, I have to take with a grain of salt that the story being told is one from a period long ago not a movie that took place a while back that's fictitious um, yeah. that it's 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 a literary piece that is trying to be reinterpreted for the big screen which Aaron you and I have had those conversations over and over again about the difficulties the challenges that come from the fact of taking a book and adapting it for the big screen either mm-hmm. you're going to miss pieces or you're going to rearrange stuff or you're going to rework certain characters this takes that to another level because now you're not only reinterpreting, reimagining something for the big screen, but you're also trying to keep that compelling epicness involved with it because the Iliad and the Odyssey were huge. I mean, these are huge works of literature that Peterson was like, I got a lot to live up to, at least from a literary scale. And now to put it on the big screen and make it feel like Spartacus, that's something that's even, even bigger. So kudos to him for the, for taking on the challenge. Well, the first topic I kind of want to dig into a bit is kind of related to what you were talking about there, Andrew. And it's, I frame this in the terms of politics. So the film opens with this explanation of the state of affairs. And this is kind of what you're saying where we're, we're being told these big grand lines. And it says, after decades of warfare, Agamemnon, king of, oh gosh, Mycenae, Mycenae, this is going to be bad, has forced the kingdoms of Greece into a loose alliance. Only Thessaly remains unconquered. Agamemnon's brother, Menelaus, king of Sparta, is weary of battle. He seeks to make peace with Troy, the most powerful rival to the emerging Greek nation. Achilles, considered the greatest warrior ever born, fights for the Greek army. But his disdain for Agamemnon's rule threatens to break the fragile alliance apart. Now, we got some Iliad Odyssey backstory here is what we got. We got it kind of quickened. Uh, up to speed to where we're at in the story. And it reminded me a lot of Star Wars and the opening crawls because it begins with giving us the state of the political and the military uh, forces and, and issues in the region. So I was wondering what you guys thought about this. And, and Andrew, you can just kind of chime in first if you want um, about, you know, does this strengthen the movie for you? Do you think that kind of streamlining by giving us this opening piece was a positive thing or could you just take it or leave it as far as you were concerned? Oh, well, I'm, uh, 
I guess I should open this by saying that I got I like minored in the classics, so I enjoy, you know, uh, the once upon a timeness of it. I tend to really enjoy opening crawls in a movie or opening narrations, just because it it's so. <laughs> well, let's see how how wh- which way this goes. Do I love it because? it is used in genre movies a lot or do I love genre movies and genre movies tend to open with someone telling you how this particular world is shaped at this time. I think um, if I was, if I was taking out the red pin, I would have probably told Wolfgang that the opening crawl maybe flashed through a one too many cards to the point where I was a little worried that I was going to have to be like, are these names going to be on the test <laughs> or <laughs> the particular point that we're coming in here. But uh, I think that, it it works like Star Wars where it and maybe this is kind of uh something that is lost, but it lets audiences know you don't need to know like we are going to be throwing you into this. If there are questions that you might be asking about this, you don't need to ask them because this is not the kind of movie where you have to. Right? Like they, this is going to be a, a movie about capital, you know, capital lettered ideas and and characters and empires. And I think one of the one of the first uh, lines that Agamemnon says is that uh, empires are forged in war. And it's like, okay, that's I'm not you're not getting insightful points for that statement. Like, yes, I suppose empires are not made by peace treaties. That's not what an empire is. But it's a, he's talking about capital E empire, right? And capital W war. So. Uh, maybe it isn't used as much in other fantasy movies because it is less tied to, uh, specific characters. Like we are introduced to one character and I guess the first character that we're really introduced to in this movie is Achilles, who is a famous hero that his reputation precedes him so much that I think it is an interesting uh, collision of genre filmmaking backfilling story and a story that everybody thinks they know, which might be kind of interesting because the version of Helen of Troy, like the first version of the story is she was kidnapped because we were from the Greek point of view about how the heroic Greeks were. So you're kind of subverting it right from the beginning, which I actually dug because someone could go into this and, I'm sitting there knowing the history and knowing the story. And maybe I'm the person who is less in it because I'm saying, Oh, this is not how this is done at all. When that's not at all the point of this kind of story. Like you're supposed to know this is the bad guy. Here they are. They're doing bad things. Achilles, the best warrior ever born. You're about to see it. Yeah. I, I'm always on the fence when it comes to voiceover and opening crawls, essentially, you know, what I call pregame and postgame information, things that things that either, lead you in or, or take you out of the movie. And it's a make or break thing. Being familiar with something like Star Wars, I really ignore the crawl. What I'm doing is waiting for the words to disappear and for the Star Destroyer to come in and start blowing stuff up because you know that's going to happen. You know that after every crawl, there's going to be a pan down to something happening. And I remember bits and pieces of the Star Wars crawl in the original three and you know yeah. even in the subsequent ones. But the action is really what gets me not being as familiar with the classics. I needed that information. I clearly remember actually rewinding and saying, I think this is going to be information I need because I started 
and people know this about me, I'm terrible with names. And so when you add classic names to the list, I had to write these names down and put little character bits beside them and say, okay, this was so-and-so and this was so-and-so. And when I started seeing names pop up, I was like, okay, all right, you're so-and-so. Okay. And you roll over here and I'm actually pointing to the map behind them, behind the, behind the actual cards <laughs> and go, okay, so Troy's over there and they're not conquered yet. Okay. Okay. That's good. So for me, it was helpful because I didn't have that familiarity. And then we first get introduced. Opening, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when we see Agamemnon, I've got a little bit of that backstory. One of the great storytelling devices that I'm guilty of using in any form of storytelling that I like that I that I try to embark on is in Medias Race, dropping you right in the middle of the action. And I feel like this does that somewhat effectively. Like we're not in the middle of a battle just yet. We're in the middle of something that's about to start. But the payoff of that with these two men fighting is so fantastic because it foreshadows what we're eventually going to see a couple of times later on, that it really comes down to human interaction and it's a fight between individuals, even though there's a lot of other stuff going on here that's surrounding it. And so whether he means to or not, I think Wolfgang Peterson opens up his film by saying, this is going to be a fight among men, not a fight among countries. So. Mm. That is interesting because it, it, this is definitely the political section. And then, you know, we get some yeah. more politics throughout the film um, where there's quite a bit of, you know, kings being counseled uh, by advisors. They're making decisions on whether or not they should fight or not. I believe quite a bit of that was probably added, if I recall, in the uh, director's cut as well, which I, I enjoy. You know, I like seeing Agamemnon sitting around in a tent trying to decide what he wants to do and having uh, Homer who one one cool point for me on watching this is just how Homer is integrated into the story. He's not <laughs> narrating for us. He is present. And when he pops up here and there and even inputs himself by giving advice, it makes it more, I don't know, immersive to me to think about the fact that he's writing this book, this great grand tale from his perspective. Uh, having been there in the moment. And so I, I love that he's kind of part of it, but he is in these key scenes where there's kind of decision-making taking place. And I like hearing some of that. And I like hearing the different styles of decision-making and how you know some rely on, uh, who is it? Trojans are relying more on the gods and the priests, yeah. you know, who tell them like, oh, let's read the omens and do what that says. And Agamemnon's like, uh, this is the best tactical thing I can do. For me, this is my chance to to you know manipulate the situation to get a tactical advantage and go and win. So that's what he wants to do, and and I love that counterbalance and, and just different approaches. Yeah, you know it's it's interesting. Just thinking about it, I would say I think the movie would introduce the audience better if those first cards weren't there. If if we were actually introduced to the dog. You know, like finding the soldier and then it's, oh, okay, this is ancient times. And then who are these massive armies marching together, which is com uh, soon undercut by the fact that this is not, like you said, this is Agamemnon saying, you bow to me. You know, it, it, this is a a personal conquest. This is not about a greek empire this is about agamemnon's empire that he's putting together and the loose alliance 
kind of comes across, I think, just because he is bullying them into doing it, that right. I, I think that almost every point just reading through this opening title card, almost every point is actually illustrated within the first probably 10 or 15 minutes of the movie. Um, particularly Menelaus, like his, his position in all of this, I think is actually executed pretty well, but between uh, this, the one scene that they have. So it's interesting to think if maybe that was the studio saying we need this with the theatrical cut that we're going to do, or if it's kind of a choice of the, of the genre. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. And that's the, that's the thing about voiceover and opening title cards is because the other side of that is they can essentially tell you, we think our audience is stupid and we need to give them as much information as possible so they can enjoy themselves. So it can make or break a film because the audience could feel like I could have picked this up in the first 10 minutes. I didn't need that. But for me, it was just fine again because I didn't have that backstory. And I'm also dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the next thing that I want to talk about is uh, an idea of selective honor. This is something that I could not get out of my head watching it this latest time. And how the lines get really blurry in this story between hero and villain. Many characters in this film seem to choose when they show honor or mercy kind of on a whim um, or like flowing with the wind. Think about Achilles desecrating the temple of Apollo and ambushing the Trojans, but then he lets Hector go free, saying it's too early in the day for killing princes, which is a great line, by the way. Um, Or Paris, he steals away another man's wife, Uh, but then he wants to do one-on-one battle to defend his country from the attack that resulted because of that. Um, Or even the battle between Paris and Menelaus, where Paris runs away and Hector steps in to kill the king. Yeah, A big part of what makes this a tragedy to me is that we see these characters acting in ways that really create conflicting feelings in us. And so I wondered for you guys, was that something that you noticed as well? Like specifically, did anybody's, any one character's actions kind of were the honorable parts of their choices lessened for you because of the dishonorable actions that they they had and also did you find yourself rooting for anyone and if so why and did it change because it did for me throughout the movie so andrew what about you i think this might be like the the perfect example of how the movie plays with the the sense of honor in the mythic you know classical golden age of hero idea and then when that falls away to a completely contemporary, modern, you know, moralistic, uh, it, 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 there's, there's a juxtaposition there that is, I think maybe, maybe unfortunately is only shown to us and it isn't really commented on by the movie. I think like the movie showing it might be Wolfgang Peterson commenting on it that, uh, just that example you gave, you know, uh, <laughs> Paris, completely irresponsible and maybe this is a part that maybe as because this movie came out what 14 years ago so i was a younger lad when i saw this and the idea of fighting a war for love um maybe it was a bit easier for me to swallow than today where he literally dooms his entire you know society yes yeah our nation (laughs) an entire country this is this is like america being doomed because one 
dude, because Donald Trump Jr. liked yeah. a girl from France <laughs> and, you know, smuggled her to the U.S. And then we all get nuked because of it. That's yep. And, and we all know in the first scene that it happens that this is the only way this ends. Right. Uh but even that is, like you said, it's it's dishonorable for him to do that. And then he wants to play honorable by defending his dishonorable deed, which kind of has an honor to it. And then he goes out to fight the guy, which is like, you know, he's not made for this kind of stuff, but it is expected and there is honor in him doing it. And then he crawls away. And then I guess that's humiliating, but he doesn't really pay for it because he's a prince and he did the honorable thing anyway. And then Hector performs what may be the most despicable act in the movie where he murders the man who had the right to murder his brother, but that doesn't really, you know, tarnish Hector's sense of honor. And, and he has opinions of honor that, that are different. I think it is, it, it is maybe when I say instructional, I feel like it is alluding to a better uh, or not better, a clearer, uh, argument that a movie like this could make where you take this grand mythic idea that everybody points to as the untouchable demonstration of the honor that only heroes have and then show it as they were just making decisions in the moment based on the exact same things that everybody else does and just because they are princes or because they say that it's love it's given this more grand idea i think it's i don't I guess I'm rooting for Hector just because he seems like the only person to realize how hopelessly screwed up this entire thing is that. Well, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, well, and you, when you put him right next to Paris, it only amplifies that mm-hmm. because in, I don't think anyone would see Paris as anything but a weakling who just even, and maybe I had an issue with this, but maybe it was Peterson's way of saying, yeah, I want you to feel this way. But we see him training with archery so he can be further away from yeah. the battle. And so that if if we're talking about consistency, I think the two characters that I felt were consistent were Agamemnon. Like his motive never changed. From beginning yeah. to end, we knew exactly who he was and, and what he stood for. So he became a, I won't say flat character, but he became a very predictable villain. And so it was easy for him to dis for me to dismiss him as like, I'm not going to root for you because you're just a meanie and you want to conquer the world. You got that Napoleon complex going for you. But then you get into characters like Achilles, who I thought were the most compelling because of the way in which they changed from the very beginning. Achilles is a mercenary. And there's a great line that he says when he's talking to Odysseus and Odysseus is trying to convince him to fight. And he goes, I have no problems with, <laughs> with the Trojans. Yeah. Like the Trojans I know are fine. And it brings out the sense that it, 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 it helped me understand that he's really just fighting because not for a king, but for himself and because he wants glory, whether or not that's good or bad or moral or immoral, seeing that sort of change happen in him over the course of the movie with his relationship with uh, Briseis, I think is her name. I don't remember how to pronounce her name. Oh, Briseis, yeah. Briseis. And eventually those interactions with 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 Hector and even, even with uh, with Priam, Peter O'Toole's character, we we don't see mercy necessarily, although there, there's some of that there. What we see, I think, is growth. And it, I think it stems from the fact that while he does see glory, 
by the end of the film, it seems like he's seeking more than that. Like he's willing to compromise that for the sake of having something that's maybe longer standing. So for me, I don't know if what he, if his character was considered honorable or dishonorable, but I think as a whole, what the movie does is it shows inconsistencies in humanity that we Mm -hmm. portray one thing, but in reality, that's my brother and I'm going to defend him at the end of the day, even though it's moral, even though it's dishonoring to what's going on here, he's still my brother and you're not going to touch him at the end of the day. So I think that's a very human quality. It's one that I think for a contemporary audience, we can latch onto because I would do that. If my brother went into battle and do all that at the end of the day, he's still my brother. And if I have an opportunity to stab the guy who's going to kill him, I'm going to do it. So that's hypocritical though, right? It is. It it really is, but it's also human. I I, I get that completely. Yeah. And I think it's a great character study for that Peterson's doing here. Yeah. I, and that is, that is interesting that that comes back to the fact that I think the versions of honor that are displayed in the movie have almost nothing to do with what side they happen to be on. Right. It's not their country. It's not the, the reason that they were brought here. It's completely divorced from that. I mean, when Paris and Achilles finally collide, Paris, I assume because it feels portrayed that way, he is committing a completely the most dishonorable attempt at being anything close to effective as he possibly can be in this world. And he has to walk away from it. And the the character that has found honor, you know, in in a different way than they had before uh, ends up dying for it. So, but at the same time, the guy who ends up kind of being the last person standing is Odysseus for whom honor and that kind of stuff is never shown to be like the motivating thing for him. Right. He's the guy who is motivated by duty in, in maybe the, the broadest sense in uh, a modern sense too. Like I have a duty to protect the people that are just charged to me. And he ends up the person at the end sending over the dead saying, you know, well, this was kind of a mess. It was a whole bunch of people being honorable and glorious and everybody ended up dead except me. <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, you know, the the idea of leadership styles and, and different ways in which that takes place in this film and the story um, were really interesting to me. You know, both in the opening battle between Achilles and the gigantic Thessalonian and then again with Achilles and Hector, um, which is, uh, you know, a follow-on to... Uh, Paris and uh, Menelaus, there is this idea of individuals fighting battles in place of kings. And one of you alluded to that earlier as well. Um, it's for kings who don't do it for themselves until they do. I guess Menelaus does attempt to at one point. But Nestor, uh, one of the advisors, tells Achilles at the beginning of this first battle that he can save hundreds by ending the war in one single fight. Mm-hmm. So I wonder what you guys thought. Was like, Do you feel like that's a cowardly practice for a king to not fight his own battles and to put everything on this one, this one guy? Or do you think that that is a, an actual good leadership quality? Like let's project that into modern day. Would we want to see warfare done in this manner? How do you feel about that? Well, I'll chime in and I'll say that I'm currently reading a book called leaders eat last, which would probably kind of, it'll foreshadow what I'm about to say. Essentially, I, as a leader in business or a leader in, in whatever capacity, part of what makes a successful, according to, to this book, part of what makes a successful leader, 
that way is having empathy for the people that he is over. And it means setting that example. It means putting yourself in the front lines to be able to say, look, if watch me, emulate me, do what I do. I mean, Paul the Apostle was that way when he was talking to uh, his local churches. He would say, act like me. And it wasn't out of arrogance. It was arrogance. It was, it was because of the fact that he was confident in who he was in Christ. And I think that it's it's portrayed as, I think, smart strategically, because if the king goes down, who's going to take his place? So I think when it comes to royalty and ruling countries, what's going to happen? But real leadership, I think, lives in the fact that you have people behind you that can be that are capable of stepping up. And so you have the ability to step in and represent and show the people that are following you what that looks like. So I think guys like Agamemnon, who let other people fight his battles, I think he's right in protecting his legacy and protecting his kingdomness. But I think it makes him a crappy leader. Yeah. Uh, I think that it's presented as almost like a gotcha at the beginning with Achilles, because it is, I mean, how is any fight fair if you have Achilles going up against anyone else? I'm also very biased in this because I am a hockey fan and seeing a game decided in a shootout, <laughs> which is effectively, yes, okay, as a we put our best, game. right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, Worse. Where you're kind of saying, I get that this is one way to me- measure excellence in, in competing groups, but that's also not what the point of the group is supposed to be, right? It's supposed to involve strategy and tactics and training and conditioning. And I think that maybe the idea that we should be judged like by history, by the absolute singular best exceptional person on either side of this is like, it's inherently dishonest and it is playing to history more than to actually in the moment, which doesn't really stray too far from kind of the, the broader ideas that I've talked about. Right. It's, Oh, well, Achilles is on our side, so we should win because we have Achilles. He's the greatest warrior in the world. How can the army of the greatest warrior in the world fail when in reality, if we kill everybody else and Achilles is the last person left standing, then the story is this was a bad idea for everyone and Agamemnon got too big for his britches, right? So that's that's not the kind of story Homer would really tell. So you kind of have to have uh, – but, but at the same time, the army at the beginning is like energized by that, right? So it is also acknowledging – almost the role of that history and myth because Achilles' reputation precedes him. And even when you say, you know, call forward the strongest soldier, the group takes pride in the excellence of their best. So I think that extends to, you know, broader outside of combat, right? Like a strong leader stiffens everyone's spines. Um, So it's nice to see that like given lip service. But I think that also the fundamental problem with that is that, you start questioning who is excellent, right? The, the warrior or the person who commands him. And I like that the movie almost immediately deals with that. It does. And then the two, the two that we see are our heroes in this Mm -hmm. case, Hector and Achilles are the opposite of that, right? Exactly. Both of them are leading by example. 
Achilles takes his small band of Myrmidons and leads them where to go. He is leading the yes. charge. He's in front. Hector does the same thing. You know, he is right there in the front lines. He is in the heart of the battle, um, waving his sword around, killing as many as he could. And I, so it's, it's really intriguing that you bring up that, that idea of, you know, the army being energized by that one champion that they're sending out. It, it reminds me of, to continue, I guess, with biblical analogies, you know, uh, the Philistines, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, with uh, a giant sending a giant out against David, like they're energized because they, they have this champion. Yeah. And it's the same concept here. Um, whereas both can be the, both can be true because it's also energizing. If your leader is running into battle with you and he's yeah. fighting right beside you. So um, I like that. And I enjoy that. We got a good portrayal of both sides. And Odysseus says something really smart here. He, he he's, he's so good at this, just hmm. inputting, little bits of wisdom through that character. Is it Sean Bean, by the way? Yep. It is. It is, right? I believe he, he is, lives, guys. He lives. He's Boromir, though. I oh. mean, let's get this straight, okay? Yes, that's, <laughs> that's fair. But he lives. Like, he survives, so that's awesome. Yeah. Um, but he says to, uh, I believe it's Agamemnon, it might be to Achilles, actually. He says, sometimes you have to serve to lead. Yeah. I hope you understand that one day. Yeah. And I just loved that line. Um, that little nugget of truth there. So I also want to talk a little bit about why do we fight? You know, we've, we've hit on this a couple times already in this discussion. Every person in this story has a different reason or motivation. And I wonder what you guys thought about that. Like, what does a person's reason for battle say about their character? And just to give a list of some of these, you know, Agamemnon fights for power and for control. Menelaus fights for reputation. He's been wronged. Paris fights because he wants the love of a woman. He wants to keep what he he wants. Hector fights for his country um, and out of devotion to his family. Priam uh, fights out of faith to the gods. Patroclus fights to become known like Achilles. Um, Eudorus fights for Achilles as his right-hand man. And Achilles fights to be remembered, I think, his mom says at one point for your glory walks hand in hand with your doom. Mm-hmm. And so there's this great part about that, but everybody has a different reason. Uh, and according to Achilles, you know, he says to this boy in the <laughs> film, he says, I wouldn't, the boy says, I wouldn't want to fight him. <laughs> right. And Achilles just turns to him and no, no hesitation and says, <laughs> that's why no one will remember your name. And I was but like, always oh, seems harsh. yeah. Like, <laughs> Every single time got him. kind of moments. Yeah. Like, dang, Ah, cool. Yeah. So yeah. So like, what do you think it says about these various characters? Character. Uh, their different motivations for wanting to fight. Uh, you know, I'm fascinated by the fact that, especially in the director's cut, I think nobody comes out looking like a fool. You know, nobody becomes, uh, a you know, like the mustache twirling. Like I think the director's cut adds like the one little detail where Agamemnon says at the beginning, you know, if we win, you, you get to stay in charge. I'm not, I'm not I don't want to kill you. I don't want to, but you got to fight for me now. Like if I win, you just have to answer my call. And then later on, he says, I have made this powerful nation out of snake, you know, snake charmers or snake handlers. And he, he kind of, mocks that he is what is advancing them, which is 
true. I mean, like we, we get a demonstration of this incredible military campaign that they're doing. Menelaus is a hundred percent right to be really furious, regardless of what kind of person he is. And when he stands off uh, against Paris and says, who, who spends the night under a treaty of peace in a man's house and then escapes with his wife and Paris has this little snap, which is uh, admittedly, it's a pretty good clap back where he says the sun was shining when your wife left you, which is, which is pretty terrific. But Menelaus is right to want him dead. Uh, Paris is in this for love and he's foolish, but I don't doubt that he believes that because he's foolish in love. Like he's, you know, naive. He doesn't know anything about this world that he's entering into. Hector is dutiful. Priam, like he, he's, it's out of a sense of duty and purpose. And I don't feel like anybody betrays the role that they are supposed to play. So that kind of speaks to the tragedy, right? There was no, you put all these characters together and there was no way for this to end except the way it does where one leads to another and one domino falls after another collision course. Like I mentioned. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, And, and I think what Peterson is doing really well here is, He's articulating any motive that we could essentially gravitate towards as an audience uh, for the most part. I mean, I've never been in a position where I'd rule a nation, so I can't really say I'd be motivated by that. But there's something nice about being in a place of power and makes you want more. There's something nice about um, or valuable about maintaining a reputation that you have or about fighting for the love of your life, about fighting for your country you know, if you're, if you're connected to the military. So all of these things are very realistic to an audience that's watching this be portrayed. And what's interesting is it muddies the waters of what we talked about earlier with regards to who are the good guys. In some ways you could yeah. root for Troy because you like Hector. Hector's the guy. He's the guy you're pulling for. But I found the fight sequence between him and Achilles to be very conflicting because I was like, I don't know who I'm supposed to yeah. be rooting for here because by the by that moment we're getting to a place where we're like what achilles is fighting for is legitimate i mean he is fighting for his cousin you know he's he's avenging his cousin's death he's no longer a mercenary he yeah. is he's got real motive yeah to to take down hector and at the same time hector has real motive to take down achilles so it's it's good conflict and it's, it's good as an audience to wrestle with that because we're now feeling what these characters are feeling and they're all coming to a head at these big battle sequences. But to know that they're all coming from different places, it makes me wonder when the U S army goes into battle, when the military troops go overseas, what are, what's their motive? What are they fighting for? Because it's not, it, it can't just be for their country. I mean, there's a reason why you sign, you sign up for, you know, military duty. I mean, the draft is no longer in effect. So is it paycheck? Well, yeah. I mean, realistically, is it a paycheck? Is it the fact that you want to travel? Is it the fact that you want to be in a fight because you want to shoot somebody? There's all these different things that go into the fact that you're, you're there for some reason, but at the end, the end result is the fact that you're there. And I think that for guys like Agamemnon, they really don't care why people are fighting as long as he gets his in game satisfy, which is I want the next piece of the puzzle so that I can conquer the world. Yeah. That's, that's maybe the, the most contradictory, but really 
enjoyable things about this is the reason that these two nations go to war is so trivial and small and way blown out of proportion of what actually causes it. But at the same time, the Trojans or the, the Greeks, there might be no more unifying <laughs> reason to go to war than this enemy of ours under peace stole a wife, which is an affront to, you know, manners, honor in, in a way that every single man in that army could get behind. And then when they come up on the shores, every single Trojan soldier has no choice but to defend what they have. So it is, it is, uh, the true tragedy where there's no, there's just no way out of this. Hector, when he's going to fight Achilles, I don't think he wants to kill him, uh, which, which is just the, the saddest thing is I don't want to be doing this, but I, if I win, I'm denying you your vengeance. Uh, yeah. And I think there's a little bit of an element there to the hashtag fake news or, you know, media <laughs> kind of control because as the Greeks don't, the Greeks just believe they're going to fight for this, this wife, right. To get her back. She was exactly. stolen. They don't know the details behind it. To me, Menelaus is the one character whose motivations I cannot accept for on any level personally. And that's, that's because of his actions while she's taken away. And yeah. so, and primarily because his response to that is not one of any kind of apologetic nature. He he doesn't want to make up. He says, I want her back so I can kill her with my own two hands. Like, that's, that's a great, that's a great line though. That is that's a so good. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. But I mean, for me, like he's the villainous villain of this entire thing because mm. he sets this thing in motion. Now, yes, Agamemnon uses it from a strategic advantage. He manipulates that situation into one that he can get what he wants because now he's got his reason to fire the nation up and get them to go to war, like you said. But it all stems from Menelaus, who has an ego. And I hate ego. And man, he is the one with the most of it in this. It's crazy because he's also like one of the weakest guys we see <laughs> as far as like fighters and body type go. You would expect that ego to come from an Achilles. Yeah. But Achilles is more of a confidence. Like he knows how strong he is. Menelaus is like this fake, fake um, manliness. This, mm -hmm. you know, uh, bravado. Yeah. 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 I just, oh, crazy. Well, there's a brutality in the battle scenes and there's some epic fight choreography. Um, and before we talk about the fights, I wanted to ask you guys this. One thing that I always notice is tactics in military films. And so the ones that are used in this era are particularly fascinating to me. Um, it's kind of like medieval battles or ones like with Braveheart time, time frame where men line up and they just face each other and they rush headlong into their likely deaths, knowing exactly what's going to happen. And today, we're more like Paris and his bow. We kill from as far away as possible with missiles from the ships in the middle of the ocean um, or drones or snipers, as little death as can be had. But it's also incredibly impersonal. And so I wonder, do you guys have any opinion on this? Do you think a desensitization, desensitization to life occurs because of this non-personal fighting that takes place? Or is it really a good thing because much like having that one guy fight your battle for you, we're having a lot less loss of life in the long run? 
Uh, well, you know, the, so the the simple questions. Um, well, that yeah, I mean, I I'm a, I'm also a fan of like World War One history, and um, a, a French general was asked, I think it was a French general asked, how how do you fight a war mercifully? And he said, make it quick, just uh, no matter what you have to do to just the only way to to end a war mercifully is just to end it as fast as as possible. I, I think that. Uh, I, this is one of the things I was saying the first time. I think this was the first time that I saw a, you know, camera sweeping over a line of one of these ancient classical sword and sandal armies as they just smashed into each other, uh, on the scale that they do, where it's just nonsensical, right? I mean, it's just a war of attrition of which side has more people. And Hector is kind of the one fighting for, for a strategy in it, which is, uh, fits with this character and fits with like the, the great generals who were geniuses who thought more than just how do we just throw one army against another? Uh, it's really entertaining to watch mainly because <laughs> it, it always seems fair, right? Like that's the thing. It always seems like there is somehow more honor in it in a person to person level, but at the same time, right? Like wars are won a battle of, at a time today and battles are won a bullet at a time. So uh, I think that I don't know if desensitization, I'm going to read this. Desensitization is, I think deaths in war are still as tragic, but I think the reason wars are fought today are more often about politics than honor just like for a good you know for the better it isn't one army leader is affronted or you know insulted and they go to war over it but yeah. i mean in those times if that was the case then okay this is a big ugly mess and this should just show everyone why you should avoid this i guess at every cost because you end up being so routed that maybe it ended up teaching them a lesson to be more selective when they go to war so maybe it is an evolution i guess but i hate the idea of you saying we're like paris's i hate that you totally <laughs> nailed it with that <laughs> well and i i look at modern warfare and where we are now with with uavs it, there's definitely that possibility of the further you are, the less hurtful it feels, the less personal it feels. But the, the, the truth is you're right. It is a political fight and not an honorable one. We're not fighting for honor. And at some point, I think it was, I think it was Hector who made a comment about the fact that, and I don't, I don't remember the line specifically. It was in my head like five seconds ago and it lost, I lost it. But he, he really talks to that about the fact that he's not, he, he has to, be in the thick of it in order for it to matter essentially. Mm. And, and I think that leading by example, like he does and like Achilles does, I think they're in the midst of their own particular reasons for fighting. There's that sense of saying, if I don't do it, nobody, people that come behind me aren't going to do it either because I'm, I'm not setting that example. And so today I think because the motive has changed or is changing the tactics change because we're not out to kill people. We're out to solve a problem. Yeah. And this was, this was a revenge war. This is a war about for, I mean, for, uh, for mentalists, 
it was a it was a revenge strategy. And for Agamemnon, it wasn't really revenge necessarily, but it was motivated by that. And he didn't really care. But it was never about making sure that we had a unified country. Because even from yeah. the very beginning, we're told this is a loose treaty. This is a sense of uh, it's it's not even indentured servanthood at this point. It's a little <laughs> bit less than that. And so when the motives change, I think the tactics change. Because you're not out there to... To, to kill people. Oh, that's what it was. Hector was saying to Paris on the boat. He said, have you ever killed somebody? Have you ever seen somebody die? Well, I have. And yeah. you don't want a piece of that. You don't want that. And he says, it never gets easier. And we've heard that said a lot of times in other, in other movies, but I think it reinforces the fact that that's the truth that men don't necessarily go into battle to kill other men. They go into battle to do something else. And it's collateral damage at that yeah. point. So making it more distant and making it more political, I think maybe easier. Yeah. I think the, the like less satisfying, but I think probably the, the most correct thing is that the way that is considered more honorable is the way that you will win. <laughs> you know, like if you have more people together for a cause, then sure, it should just be one side against the other. And that's fair. And if you're the side that has the most, advanced technology you're going to say well you know this is this is warfare this is yeah, uh great yeah or, or if you, i mean i learned that hard the hard way playing uh civilization you know when i roll in with my military age army against people you still using stone weapons it is a tragedy it is a tragedy no and it is amazing <laughs> from one perspective from my perspective you know, this is a military victory. What can I tell you? I love it. Yeah, no, that's a great analogy. I'm a huge fan of the series. I've played it my whole life. So I love that. It's you're you're so right. It's all about perspective. Which side are you on? And Patrick, that that frame or that uh, scene in the boat with Hector and Paris, that's another one of the big like got him lines in the movie during that moment is where he says, you say you're willing to die for love, but you know nothing about dying and you know nothing about love. Right. I was like, oh, Paris, snap. I'm told. Snap. Yeah. Snap moment right there. <laughs> I love them because, you know, they're right, right? Hector is absolutely spot on. So let's go from like this big macro level view down to the micro. And, and let's talk about this fight. We have two big ones. Well, you know, taking away the Achilles at the beginning fight, but two that matter. We have the Paris fight with Menelaus. We don't need to really talk too much about that one. It's pretty good. Ends up in Paris running away like a scared little boy. Um, but what people remember about this film, what people remember when you say, have you seen Troy is Achilles versus Hector. So yeah. real quick, let's listen to how this fight starts. I've seen this moment in my dreams. I'll make a pact with you with the gods as our witnesses. Let us pledge that the winner will allow the loser all the proper funeral rituals. There are no pacts between lions and men. Now you know who you're fighting. I thought it was you I was fighting yesterday. And I wish it had been you. But I gave the dead boy the honor he deserved. You gave him the honor of your sword. You won't have eyes tonight. You won't have ears or a tongue. You will wander the underworld blind, deaf, and dumb, and all the dead will know. This is Hector. Fool who thought he killed Achilles. All right, so bad accent aside, or 
lack of accent aside, can't change that. But the dialogue and the setup for yeah. what we are about to see is something that I absolutely love. I enjoy the demeanor of these two men coming into this place and how one Hector is ready to just, he's still trying for diplomacy in some sense. And Achilles is having none of that. Like his mind was made up. It is a done deal. And yet they both understand that that's how this is going to end. Like you said earlier, Andrew, and we get that line, that final line. This is Hector the fool who thought he killed Achilles. And I mean, uh, yeah. that's Greek tragedy. That is Greek mythological storytelling at its best, right? That line to me encompasses so much of what this movie is all about. So what did you guys think about the setup to this and then this fight, this epic fight and the choreography and just everything regarding this? Well, I, I thought that it was, I mean, it's my favorite scene in terms of how everything comes to that moment. It's obviously the one that is for a lot of people, the most memorable. And I don't know that I remember any music, which I thought was interesting. Am I correct in remembering I that? I think so, yeah. Because I think the lack of music made it a lot more raw. It mm-hmm. didn't It didn't take, it It kept the drama with the choreography and with the with these two guys. Like it didn't need it. And um, I don't know if you're, Aaron, you're listening to the West Wing Weekly and Rishi K. Shirway is a guy who's, he talks about music quite a bit. And, they make fun of the fact that sometimes music doesn't isn't needed in certain scenes because the dialogue is so good. They do. Well, I think it can bring it down. It can. Yeah. It can. It can make it feel a little fake or a little bit more superficial. And I think the lack of music in this, the fact that it's just this raw clanging of 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 weapons and grunting and all, it's just pure fighting. And it's when when Achilles finally kills Hector, it's so devastating because mm-hmm. you're not being told by the music this is devastating you're seeing how devastating it is like even the blow isn't as yeah heart, heart, disheartening as the exactly. fact that he ties him up and pull and drags him away uh, and <laughs> seeing seeing Priam just go uh, basically pass out and and knowing that his wife can't watch that like that moment i think it's Polydora is that his wife's name being conf- being consoled by Helen once he's fallen, those moments just completely take the emotional weight and just push it down on you and make you go, this is real. You didn't want this to happen in either case, but you really feel like, oh gosh, I didn't want Hector to die. And it's, it's, it's devastating is the only word I can think of to describe that. I, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's like, um, I've said I'm a big fan of black sales and they do that all the time where the door closes and the music just drops. And then, you know, Oh, something important is about to happen. And it is cool to see that done with dialogue. It's, I, it's way, way rarer. I I think, or it seems rarer for that to happen before a fight happens. Like that's usually when you want to dial up the spectacle of it. And this really was great, great choice from Wolfgang Peterson to the drama is what we've been building to in these characters. And yeah, Achilles just has that monologue that is like, I know, I know he's right. Like, you know, that is uh, history is just slamming down on Hector here. And the thing that makes it fantastic for me is that it is like, if Hector was fighting for the defense of his people, he couldn't lose. 
right? He, he is that kind of hero, but he is now fighting because he killed this guy's cousin. And, uh, and I shouldn't have, right? Like I, I killed a, a, a kid who shouldn't have been there is, is kind of the way it is treated in one way or another. And because of that, you almost know he's going to lose because this is the fight that he could lose because it's completely personal. And like you said, he, it's, it's great that it's orchestrated the way where his strength is in kind of weathering the storm of Achilles and Achilles even tries that one leaping blow and it hits the shield. So you know that Hector is smarter than that. And yeah, I mean, that's just a fantastic, the way that it's choreographed isn't the way that you typically see it either. Like, um, it's, it's so much fun to watch because it really does seem like Achilles is deadly because he's quick, you know, and, and letting the blade do the work. Like, you, you don't usually see that in these kind of sword fights. Right. I mean, he's not Hercules. This is not a matter of exactly. pure strength. These are fighting wise. These are two very evenly killed, evenly matched men. Yeah. I mean, in the story, heroes, exists that you know hector is one of them mm-hmm, exactly the greatest general so this is not a foregone conclusion that achilles is going to win based on skill it is a foregone conclusion that you know because of how greek tragedies play out yeah like you're like, saying yeah and you know that achilles is going to win because he cares about winning yes right and right that's so scary because he he i think it is also the fight where he comes off looking the smartest in that Hector, you know, makes him rise to that occasion. But like you said, Patch, it isn't that he kills Hector where the music comes in. It is just that he hits him. And that is like, oh, this fight is over. I mean, the, the fact that you've built up to that where it just sucks the air out of the room for everyone hoping for Hector, there's no coming back from this. He, he it's, it's just a foregone conclusion. It was the first person to blink, I guess, basically. Yeah, and I think that since no one's going to mention it, I'm going to play a little foreshadowing here. It's not a connecting point. It was almost mine, though. The m- fact that later on after this fight, the way it goes down, and then with Achilles dragging him off at the back of his chariot, yeah. the fact that Priam then goes to Achilles and that whole scene was so close to being my connecting point because of Achilles' respect. Like once the adrenaline has calmed down and this is such yeah. something we can all relate to, right? When we all get hyped up and we fight, endorphins are going through our, our body like an MMA fight or something. And then like you come down and you're, you're angry. Like you're, you're saying things you don't necessarily mean. You're trying to be at your most vicious. But then once you go back to level, you can reason. And we see that Achilles has a heart and, and can understand and respect Priam, and he says that great line, gosh, that line, where he tells him, he says, you have more bravery or something than the entire Greek army. Yeah. I believe is what he says. Oh, He said, "He said you make a better king than the one currently. That's that it. That's, that's even better. Yeah. That's another ooh, got him moment. Well, and there's a line that I did not expect Achilles to say, and it it kicks back to 2000 from Gladiator when he – is covering Hector up in a blanket, getting ready to send him off. And he says basically, and I'm going to use the gladiator line. He says, I'll see you. I'll see you soon, brother. I'll see you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because he's like, we are brothers. You know, we are the same when it comes to the fact that we are military leaders. And 
that's a great exclamation point on what I believe sells Achilles character change. Cause I think in that moment it pays off what we see later when yeah. he goes, when he goes after the girl, because having not seen that, I don't know that I would have believed his, his trying to trying to rescue later on. I think it's that moment that, that I needed to, to give him a little bit of humanity and a little bit of empathy for the world around him. Because up to that point, he was a mercenary looking for glory. Yeah. And that, it, that is the moment, right. Where, or for me, it kind of felt like, uh, you know, you'll be, you'll be famous basically for all time as Hector, the fool who thought he killed Achilles. And then the rage subsides and it's almost like, no, you were as famous as me at this, at this point, right. That, people spoke of you the way I would want them to speak of me also. And I knew even when I killed you, you were deserving of that based on the, not just the warrior you were, but like the, the man you were, which is a, a big moment for Achilles to even appreciate that. Yeah, for sure. Patrick, I'm so glad you brought that up about uh, his change and going after Perseus. Cause that was actually a question I was going to ask that I don't have to ask anymore was about, you know, did you buy that change. And I, I completely agree with you that, that it sells it here because now he's become a different man. Something yeah. different is what he values. He has changed. So, uh, last kind of semi-ish big topic, it's really not, but the thing that everybody knows about this movie or that happens in this movie that people know in cultural lexicon is the Trojan horse. And so much happens before the Trojan horse shows up in this movie that it's <laughs> kind of shocking yeah. You're like, oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Right. That happened, didn't it? Like that's when this happened. I mean, it's, it's like anticlimactic after you see the Myrmidons storming the beach a la D-Day or, mm-hmm. you know, the movie 300. And then this horse rolls up and you're like, wow, I forgot that this took place. So my question is like, how did you guys feel about that? Um, I'll tell you, I struggled a little bit with whether or not the Trojan horse kind of worked and, whether it was realistically something that would have happened, it just feels unrealistic to me. And, and like in the midst of the battle that the last thing they would do is be like, Oh yeah, cool. They disappeared. And we're just going to believe that they left us this cool horse as a gift all of a sudden. And it's cool. Like <laughs> it just seemed a little sudden, like in concept, but I think about the fact that the film does do a good job of setting up uh, the religious section of the Troy um, nation and how in their minds they're reading everything as omens and they're trying to follow the the signs of the gods and maybe they could believe like okay that's what this is and so they could kind of be lulled into believing that and then you know the smartness of the tactic kind of playing on that knowing that the trojans would feel that way so i, I see it kind of both ways but for the most part it, it did kind of shock me when it showed up what about you guys I, yeah, it's, it's a, it's, it does always seem like even before I saw the movie, like way too modern an idea that, you know, like way too sneaky a trick for, to have like A worked and B been remembered, <laughs> you know, as the thing. But, um, cause I think it's Odysseus who he's also presented as a smart enough guy, you know, to, to really sell this thing. And, uh, mainly, I buy it because the design of that horse is so good. <laughs> if I'm being totally honest with the, you can see the curved, the curved boards from the ship, putting it together that there is a way that 
I mean, I know the way that I pictured a Trojan horse before seeing this movie up until I was like literally a teenager is ridiculous. I feel stupid for having pictured like a hobby horse that was hollow with people in it. So to see this as the design of it, I think it not only sells the idea for me, but that horse both how it is discovered on the beach and it being wheeled into the city are some of the most memorable uh like visual sequences of the movie for me that I think that in a movie like you said that has it's almost an afterthought I really probably does speak to how well Wolfgang Peterson and his production team nailed that for that even be to remember something that sticks out amidst all of the other stuff in the movie up to it yeah I kind of didn't want it to happen because of the way Peterson sets everything up, it, it, it comes on the heels of, of my 48 experience and it feels like a 48 hour moment. Like, Hey, we need to wrap this up. So what do we need to do? Let's get a horse. And <laughs> the whole conversation between Paris and Priam and Paris is like, we need to burn it. We need to burn it. And yeah. Priam's like, no, it's to the gods, it's to the gods. I, I bought some of that. I didn't buy all of it. And I bought less of it than I probably should have. And the fact is you had to include it because it's the climactic moment of the bat of the battle. Like this is the thing that the Trojan war is known for is that horse and burning down the city. But it's, <laughs> I guess we look at it from two different vantage points because I thought it did a disservice to the rest of the movie because everything else felt mm. so epic in scale. Whereas this felt like a cheap exclamation point to say, we got to get to the end. Let's go ahead and throw this in. And it took a grand total of what? 10 minutes to get through all that. I almost would have, if you're going to have some Liberty with the story, I almost would say, just leave out the Trojan horse and find a better way in. But again, you've set this up from the very beginning that the walls of Troy are impossible to penetrate. You have to find a way to do it. So to speak positive honesty in this, I would say that the reaction from the crowd, from the, from the Trojans themselves and how, almost arrogant they they seemed in dancing around this horse like look what we got was perfect for that setup of the the burning down of the city it was like oh here you go here's your come up and it's getting ready to happen you knew it was coming you were just kind of waiting for that shoe to drop and so i thought that was nice okay but but i have to patch (laughs) if how would you feel if when Paris said we should burn the thing down, they went completely meta and cut to a shot of one of the soldiers inside the horse going, oh, like having the moment. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, right. And it. it's sold. I would love, that would have been great, too. It's like, oh, look, this is this is the this is the alternate ending to the Trojan War. They burned everybody. <laughs> Yeah, they burned every Greek that was inside that horse. And yeah, so- or did like that Twilight movie where the whole town, the city burns down, and then you rewind, and that was all just what that one Greek guy was imagining could happen, but they set it fire to it and it burns down. Amazing. It was all a dream. You have, yeah. you know, you've got you got Patrick Duffy in a shower at the end of this thing, going, <laughs> "Wait, did I just dream about the Trojan War? What was happening there? That would have oh, been my. great too." <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, a last couple things just to wrap up. I guess any any loose ends and anything anybody else wants to mention. I, I got to say, I really like the score to this by James Horner. I think it's underrated. And, yeah. yeah, there's some good themes that are throughout. Yeah. The screenplay is by uh, David Benioff, who would later go on to be the writer and showrunner of Game of Thrones. So that's cool. Came kind of early on in his career. You can see the influences there. Yeah. 
and uh, and casting in general. I, I just wondered if you guys had any thoughts. I will say that Diane Kruger for me is absolutely worthy of being the face that launched a thousand ships. Mm-hmm. Um, she's supposed to be stunningly beautiful uh, to the point of just being mesmerized, and I will say that I was. Any other casting notes for you guys? Uh, she definitely sells the character, I think, in those first scenes. I think I have very complicated feelings about Orlando Bloom, <laughs> mainly because I love him in Kingdom of Heaven. I think that he, by realizing, you know what, if I was a physically imposing character, then this whole thing that I'm doing would read a lot differently. I I, I could play to more of the brooding um side of his thing. Him in those early scenes, uh, I think that Diane Kruger is is doing what is right for the role and right for the tone of it. And a lot of those lines are hard for her to, to really sell, like the, you know, I was a ghost and that. But I believe it coming from her. I think that Orlando Bloom is, if you cast a different guy and I buy their romance, then I think a lot of the rest of the movie maybe doesn't work as well. Um so that would be a part of it. Uh, Brad Pitt. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, uh, uh, okay. <laughs> I think because here's the thing, him in fury is one of my favorite war movie characters that has ever been put to film. And I think there is more overlap between the two characters than would appear at first glance um, in terms of the kind of, burned out right like broken down disillusioned about the idea of like war being a glorious thing so maybe he just wasn't up he wasn't old enough to maybe play the some of the things that that are put across there but i am as upset by some of the directorial choices that are made him his face when he finds out Patroclus is dead is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever seen. I've never even seen Brad Pitt make that face. Like it is such an odd choice. I can go into a couple of, I can go in a patch. Let, well, you say your opinion. Then I have a few other inexplicable moments of this movie that I need to talk about. Well, I, I'm with you on Orlando Bloom and I, I respect, I, I respect his acting chops and, and there are movies that he's in. I think he gets a bad reputation for being kind of a whiny guy yeah. because of the, the roles that he's given. He actually has gone on record as saying he didn't like this role because of that. Mm-hmm. He didn't like the fact that he's the weaker of the two. He's got that baby face. And so I'm sure casting was probably thinking about that when they, when they put him in the role. Um, but, but I agree. I, I don't know that. I don't think he's as strong as, as Diane Kruger in terms of, yeah. of their character performances. Like, I feel like she's the stronger of the, in the relationship, she's the man. Okay. Like she feels more, yeah. more dominant in that relationship where he comes across as, and it, it, it is reinforced in the fight sequence. So again, if it's played for that, then obviously Peterson's doing something right, but he's a, he's an actor that I have trouble putting in, more than just a few innocent roles. Like I loved him in Elizabeth town. I thought his, I thought his role in that was fantastic. And he My played, wife loves that movie and him in it. Yeah. Too. Yeah. It, it's just, it's, he's good in that. And because he's catering to, I think his, not just his acting chops, but his 
the kind of characters he, he wants to portray. There are just certain types of roles that you can give him where he's going to be successful. Um, and I thought Brad Pitt as an older actor would be a better version of Achilles. I, I think I'm just basically saying, I agree with you on both your points that Brad Pitt, an older Brad Pitt would be sold more as Achilles for me than a younger Brad Pitt. Like, I think he felt too much like a Dillard's model or, you know, something like that because of the yeah. fact that it, it's just, there was a lot of emphasis on muscular prowess, which makes sense for a movie like this, but Eric Bana sold it more than he did as Hector. And so for me, I thought Eric Bana was probably the strongest in terms of a complete character uh, from an acting point of view. So he was probably the most, the most complete for me. So do you think though, that Brad Pitt would have been able to evoke much more from this character with an accent similar to that of Eric Bana's for Hector? How much does that impact his performance? I, I mean, the alternative is him having no accent, which I think I would have almost preferred because but I, it's almost could. there though. Like in that, mo- in, that true, scene, we, makes- in that scene we listened to, right. Where they're about to face off. If you, yeah. if you listen to a clue, you realize Hector is speaking in a very distinct accent and then you get like normal English Brad Pitt response. It's almost jarring. It is. It is kind of like. There is no answer because the answer we all know is that he just he if he can't do the accent, that cannot be the the person who plays right. Like if he went completely American, he might have been able to sell some of that dialogue better. But then he just reads as contemporary as he's already kind of fighting with. Um, already I don't really have a problem with some of the lines he has to deliver are pretty hard too, and. I do think maybe with a different director who was aware of the fact that we're going to have to maybe get creative so that people don't necessarily grate as much on that disparity there. It could have worked a bit better, but I feel like there's just no way it's kind of like an unsolvable problem. It is. And I think, I think it relates back to a little bit of, Kevin Costner as Robin Hood. I mean, he didn't yeah. have an accent and that was fine for me because I don't expect British accents or English accents when it comes to my Robin Hoods necessarily. I mean, it's a nice plus one, but I, I think if you would put, if you had given him or even if, if you had given him a significant accent change, it would have been jarring because I don't know that he could have sold that. And I think you'd find the same issue with, with Pitt's character. Yeah. And that, and Aaron, I think you, point out here in the notes i think it, one of way that it could have been helped if there was a wider more diverse range of actors and accents mm-hmm. yeah uh, definitely then, a lack of diversity yeah. in this this is this is one of those classic epics that are from the 60s or 70s where <laughs> everybody was white and now we're in the 2000s and everybody still was white yeah that what, uh, were, the, uh, what were the other issues you had andrew before we move into the the feely, <laughs> feely stuff well here okay a little little note when when Brad Pitt says that out on that beach is immortality it's there take it we get <laughs> it cuts to a group shot and cuts back to him inexplicably holding his sword and it is in slow motion that is <laughs> it's it's like the speed ramped down to to the point where I, I you never even see that kind of shot in modern filmmaking ever it's played for the only time I can think of it done is on Arrested Development when it is played for a joke, 
as like, you know, old school as, as the shot goes off of them. Um, but guys, I would be remiss and you would never have me back if I did not mention the director's cut is made necessary watching <laughs> for no other reason than Ajax. <laughs> <laughs> Ajax, uh, who's who's played by he, the um, the fine fine actor Tyler Maine, who people will recall as um, Sabretooth from the first X Men movie, uh, smashing people and proclaiming, um, "I am." <laughs> Sorry, he proclaims, "I am Ajax," and then uh, whose line does he steal? He he he. It's the Ozymandias poem, isn't it? He says. Look upon my uh something and Destroyer despair. Oh yeah, yeah. Look upon, and I'm <laughs> the the collision. The way it's delivered too is like all one shot delivered to a non-existent crowd off camera as people are just running by him. It is one of the most standout moments in a movie that I've ever seen. It was so funny. I I didn't laugh. I was watching it in disbelief that this had made it in, and I would strongly urge everybody to see it for that because nothing better communicates how you are not supposed to be watching this movie than seeing that and laughing <laughs> rather than, you know, being like my dad and saying like, Oh, cool. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's awesome, man. Um, anything else or is that, that the one big one? Um, I think that might be the, the one big one there. Yeah. Oh, also, <laughs> uh, I should offer as, a just maybe a little Easter egg there that literary historians disagree on whether Patroclus was the cousin of Achilles or a lover of Achilles. And I think that credit to Wolfgang Peterson, the way it is treated in the movie, it definitely could play either way, even the way that, right. Even the way that they are kind of training together. It's the only time the movie plays with the homoeroticism of, um, they are not, brothers they are friends mm -hmm. but closer than that so i think that, that is a an interesting thing that that even plays just in the adaptation of it i literally said those exact words to patrick before you got on tonight we were talking yep. about that and patrick was bringing up that in the original story patroclus and it was a more of a homosexual relationship and i said that i said you know garrett headland's character sells it perfectly yeah, yeah. he's got that facial expressions down and just kind of the the more softer demeanor to him uh and just yeah the way that they interact you could read it either way and it worked and i think that is a, a yeah. great touch and like patrick you mentioned earlier too off off camera off mic how the mythological elements are really removed from this mm -hmm. you know, we don't have the gods throwing around thunder or doing yeah. anything and and stuff and so I think it's a good nod to some of these details from the stories. And it is one of the better touches that Wolfgang Peterson had. Yeah. I mean, I think Peterson it's, it's been said that he wanted to make this feel more historical than mythological. And, and I, and I credit him for that. I think it's, it's difficult to translate something that is clearly engulfed in mythological elements. And when you remove those, you have to be able to continue to tell your story in a way that feels big and, and dramatic. I think that for his part, there was enough to the mythological elements that they were more tertiary influences mm -hmm. than direct influences because 
look, I'm a huge fan of the Percy Jackson book series. I want to be very specific when I say that because the movies did not do the books justice uh, for, for many reasons that do not need to be said on air. And I think what Peterson does here is being able to balance that and say, hey, the gods are important. They did this. There are several moments in the movie where I think Priam talks about when um, I think it was either either Paris or Hector that had scarlet fever. And he, he mentions, I went to the temple and I prayed to Apollo, mm-hmm. Apollos. And he said, that was the longest walk of my life going back from there to the palace. And to know that when he came back, he saw that your feet, you know, your fever had, I guess it was Hector when he was talking to him, yeah. your fever had broken. Those are great moments that give us the, in, they, they remind us that the gods are influential in the story. And so I, I think it was, I think it was a good creative decision to not include them. Um, because to include them would, I think, err on the side of hokiness and a little bit of, you'd have to go real fantasy if you did that. Because when you include those types of elements, you're just asking for that stuff. And I think it would yeah. take away from some of the drama. Yeah. yeah. And Hector, even, it doesn't say it's ridiculous to believe this. He says it's ridiculous to try to plan our strategy around a bird with a snake in its claw. So he even right. gives that a free pass, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Um, cool. Oh, can I, if I can give one final note, you can as the, as a purveyor of positivity, I have to call out because she is unquestionably most famous for her role. That is deeply regrettable in the movie, deep blue sea that Saffron Burroughs, I think is actually great as Andromache Hector's wife, both with him and kind of bringing weight to that fight. Uh, it's, it's a small role, but I think that she does enough good in it, especially opposite Eric Bana, to ha- make me permanently refer to her as Troy's Saffron Burroughs as opposed to Deep Blue Sea's Saffron Burroughs. Also, it. amazing name. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, no, that's very, very much. Okay, well, let's go ahead and then and transition into our connecting points uh, to wrap this up. Andrew, you get to go first because you're the guest. What was your connecting point? I don't know if it would have been my connecting point when I first saw the movie. That would have been probably the cool shot when Brad Pitt jumps off the ship. Uh, I was a younger man then. But uh, now I will say it was when Hector uh, first has his face-to-face with Achilles, and he says, only fools and old men fight for honor. I fight for my country. And... Uh, now I'll just say now that is so not a line that I would expect to be in this movie and even spoken by his character that that's kind of a, one of the first moments in the movie where I see the kind of person that he is aside from being Paris's brother. Uh, his responses are all, all really good, but that was a, a great moment where, uh, it also speaks to the movie we're about to see, obviously, uh, in a way that I think is not maybe read immediately that, uh, old men fight for honor because what else do they have to fight for? Uh, and fools implying Achilles, but, uh, I don't know. I, I just love that characterization that a, a person can be dutiful and the idea of being one of the greatest warriors in the world. And thinking that honor has absolutely nothing to do with it. Even when you could, uh, 
frames some of the reasons why he fights as a type of honor. Mm-hmm. I think it just makes his character infinitely more interesting. And uh, some of my maybe the most timeless scenes in the movie in terms of how they resonate with me do hinge on him. Uh, he seems like a, a, a the most relatable guy in the movie that I would if in if I had to choose someone in the story to be, I would want to be Hector <laughs> uh, and him saying that, you know, honors for fools uh, is is a thought that I will leave this movie remembering as an adult uh, and, a, and a movie fan. That's great stuff, man. Patrick, what about you? What was your uh, point? The, the one moment that stood out to me that really grabbed me in terms of Achilles character was the, the conversation with his mother. Now I knew from mythological history that one of his parents was immortal and I couldn't remember which one it was. Um, come to find out later, it's actually his mom. And this is again, one of those ambiguous moments that Peterson doesn't tell us about the immortality of his mother. He didn't even give her name in this. He just refers to her as Achilles mother. Yeah. And of all the themes tackled in this movie, the one that stood out more than any was what it meant to be remembered. Achilles' mom basically tells him, and I'm I'm paraphrasing, she says, you can be remembered for a finite amount of time after living a long and abundant life, having a wife, having kids, or you can be remembered infinitely, but at the expense of never living that full life at all. Like I think she specifically says, you could stay here, you can have a family, and you can have kids, and they'll remember you. And then their kids and those kids will will not remember who you are. Or you yeah. can go to Troy and be remembered for an eternity, but you will never come back here. And to me, that's a difficult idea to wrestle with because it challenges us as an audience to evaluate what a legacy really is. And uh, You asked the question, something like, do I matter if my great-great-grandchildren don't know who I am, even though they exist in part because of me? Or is my value wrapped up in influencing generations of people because of either my martyrdom or my sacrifice? And again, I go back to the Apostle Paul. You know, his works are documented in Scripture, and so he's remembered. But he was also he also died a single man. Um, he had influence on guys like Timothy and other people, and so his legacy was left even though he died in prison and he didn't have a legacy of children to leave behind. Of course, that's not a parallel comparison to Achilles, but I think when we see Achilles character go through this arc, I think what it does is it it allows him to wrestle with that same idea because he goes into Troy thinking, I don't care about the life after this. I want to leave a legacy. I want to be remembered forever. And his mind is and his heart change. And it's serendipitous, ironic. I don't know what the right word to use is here, but he dies in battle and he's remembered for that moment and for the influence he had, not because of his family legacy, because he never has that opportunity. And so even though his heart changes and he wants that first situation, he wants that first scenario that his mom speaks of, he ends up getting what it is that he originally asked for. And I think it speaks to your one word takeaway, Aaron, that that is truly part of a tragic story. Man, that's, that's great. That is really good stuff, man. Um, my connecting point is actually kind of the sequence of scenes that lead up to the battle between Achilles and Hector. There 
are a lot of moments that I really did feel connection in this story, but this one overshadowed them all. We get to see several things happening. We see both men consulting loved ones, um, wrestling with what to do, whether or not to go in the first place. Um, Briseis is trying to talk Achilles out of going because she doesn't want him to kill her cousin. Um, and then we get this awesome back and forth montage uh, of them putting on their armor. It's brief. It's not overdone, but it's powerful. And it shows you a sense of like what it's, what it would be like to actually physically prepare for this coming one-on-one fight. And then ultimately we get to see them both departing uh, from those that they care about most to meet each other on the battlefield alone. And it's really hard for me because of seeing them get ready to go do this fight. I can't choose who to root for. And we've, yeah. we've talked about this so much throughout this podcast that that conflicting ideals and I, you know, pieces of, of being honorable versus not honorable, those moments that come and go. And for me, I, I understand both characters. I understand their motivations so clearly. And I wish with all of my being that they could both survive, that they could just hug it out, say what's done is done and move on and both be the great leaders that they both can be. But they can't because the events leading up to this inevitable clash, Patrick, like you just talked about, this is to me what defines that great Greek tragic story. And I think it's just an incredibly well done sequence that makes that battle pay off in a way for me that is more than just cool and memorable. It's emotional and powerful. So that was mine. All right, gents. Well, this has been a long talk, but an amazingly great one for me. I've enjoyed the heck out of this and I have loved having you here, Andrew. You brought so many wonderful um, perspectives that we wouldn't have had without you. So thank you for joining us again. Oh, I'm I'm happy to be here. I I got to get that Ajax love out there on the internet. <laughs> well, and Kingdom for he- Kingdom of Heaven director's cut is actually on my list. So, oh uh, man, I'll have to keep yeah. you in mind now that we know that you're a big fan of that one. Oh yeah, I, I actually watched the first five minutes of of Troy, thinking Ridley Scott made this. This was the one that people <laughs> didn't like, and then I remember that was Alexander. But then uh, I was I was I got about 10 minutes in and then looked it up and was a little relieved. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, where can people find your work online? Um, what do you do out there in the world of film criticism or movies, comics, all that good stuff? Oh, well, you can find me writing a uh, movie and TV and comic book news and all that good stuff at ScreenRant.com. We've got San Diego Comic-Con coming up, so uh, there will be just a disgusting amount of news and hot takes delivered by myself and and the rest of my ilk, uh, all of which you can find on Twitter at Andrew B. Dice. When are you going to give us an Aquaman trailer, man? Uh, I think you won't have much longer to wait. <laughs> can you call up James Wan, pull some strings? <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, uh, you know what? Let me see. I'll send him a text. There, as, how about that? As yeah. champion of the DCEU universe, I, or, <laughs> I guess that was redundant, but I, as champion of them, I feel like you should have some extra cred. Mm-hmm. I feel like... I will have no no cred will be needed once that Aquaman trailer actually comes out. Excellent. Well, Patrick, what about you? Where can people find you? Um, and what is some of the stuff we've got coming up? Yeah, I've, uh, you can find me on social media at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E, 
L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, next week, we are excited to launch our first ever premium pick discussion. We're going to be covering Life is Beautiful. If you don't know much about premium picks, you can learn more about that uh, on our website at feelandfilm.com. Just look under the support the show option for more information. If you want to be a part of maybe having a say in what we cover for a little bit of money, you can have that kind of influence. So be sure to check back next week as we cover Life is Beautiful, our first feature length live action foreign film. So we'll be looking at subtitles quite a bit and hopefully having a great discussion as a result of that. Awesome. And uh, you can find me all over social media at Feelin' Film Aaron. Uh, we're also tweeting from the show's main account at Feelin' Film. And of course, active in our Facebook group. If you want to communicate with me, you can at me there or at Patrick, and we'll be happy to respond and engage in some conversation with you. It's also a great place full of other movie lovers that continues to grow and amaze me on a weekly basis. It just is become a self-sustaining spot for lots of fun movie talk. Um, sometimes it goes into video games or comics or TV shows here and there as well. And it's a great group of people. So we encourage you all to give that a shot. Come check it out. We would love to have you be part of the community. But thank you, as always, for listening. We enjoyed that, and we are so grateful that you have given us your time. Until next time, though, stay positive. And keep feeling film.